Hello and welcome to season four of the Bible and Me podcast. This is episode two of 12 in this series. So join us on this journey as we discover some incredible testimonies of people whose lives have been well and truly changed for the calling of God. In this episode, Nigel Watts sits down with Alistair McKitterick, a biblical and theological studies lecturer at Moreland's Bible College. With Alistair's strong background in science, we hear of how design on a creation scale is in fact believed by more people than you would think. The views expressed by the individual in this podcast may not reflect that of Preset Ministries UK. We hope this podcast inspires you in your daily walk and would love it if you could leave a review or rating so that we can encourage more people to the good news of the gospel. Now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I am so pleased to be welcoming Alistair McKittrick to the programme today. Alistair is a lecturer in Biblical and Theological Studies at Moreland's Bible College near Christchurch in Dorset. He lectures in subjects such as Biblical Theology and Hermeneutics. He has particular interest in the science and faith debate and is currently pursuing his doctoral studies. He's married to Emily. They have three boys and a daughter. He loves mountain biking, cricket, playing the bass and theology, of course, uh, and he dislikes commuting and marking essays. Um, Alistair, welcome to the programme. Thanks for having me. Alistair, why are you a follower of Jesus? How did this happen for you? Um, I think I was brought up in a, a household that uh, knew about God. I lived in Canada for a while, and uh, there's quite a uh, a church environment that was aged five to ten, so I was sort of immersed in a sort of Christian environment then. But uh, when we came back to Scotland, um, I think that uh, the best thing that my folks did was to get rid of me during the summer and send me on a scripture union camp. And um, uh, I think it was more for their benefit than for mine. <laughs> but uh, anyway, at one of those camps, I went sort of year on year uh, for a while, and I remember. Uh, uh, Richard Gorey was one of the speakers, and he a great man of God. And uh, I remember responding to one of his messages and praying, and knowing what I was doing. So I must have been about eleven or twelve, something like that. Mm. Oh wow! And did you? So you were a church goer at that time. You were going to church, were you? Or, yes, or, uh, yeah. a, a nice sort of Church of Scotland church where pretty much anything went. It didn't really matter too much what you believed at the time, um, but. Uh, Towards the, uh, uh, well, I, I did a few scripture union camps and uh, got some very good friends that um, turned my sort of Christian faith into a much more living entity, you know, with a good sense of challenge and accountability with these two guys in particular. Mm. The three of us were, um, were uh, well, it, it made a big difference having these other two to sort of spur me on. Yeah. And so I eventually went to uh, one of their churches. In fact, it was the other side of town. I had to cycle across town to get to it. Uh, and that was um, a much more uh, dynamic and lively church. And um, so my, my Christian faith uh, became much more vital to me mm. and, uh, and significant. And, and uh, uh, I think that um, the Lord really uh, blessed my, my sort of nurturing as a young Christian with... Uh, some lovely folk um, in a small little Elam Pentecostal church. Um, there was only about 25 folks, so everybody knew everybody, and they they probably uh, fussed over me quite a bit, and I, I, I think I benefited a lot from that. 
Oh, and what place did the did the word of God have uh, at that time um, as you were searching and seeking and finding? And what was it about Jesus that you thought, yes, actually, I want to know more about Jesus and follow him? Well, two things. The, the, I had a, a, a sort of Friday night group, which was a scripture union group again back in Edinburgh. Um, and that was good just for fellowship and uh, some really good words of wisdom. I remember some of those. Um, I had my Good News Bible and... Um, I remember going through that and highlighting loads and loads of pages. I don't and believe of, you said that. Yeah. I don't really, I did exactly I the same thing. I was a lot older than you were when I did it, but I did exactly the same. And so I've got a, a good news Bible, which is sort of, yeah. you know, highlighted yeah. to shreds. <laughs> yeah. um, that is so funny. And uh, so that was, that was quite important. Um, I think that uh, I, uh, something changed uh, around about, just before I went to university, actually, there was a, a, a John Wimber conference. He came to Edinburgh. And uh, the, many of the church were very excited about going to see him, and that's fine. It was, it was uh, remarkable to see what was going on. I was rather uh, disappointed myself. You know, lots of the other folks that went had rather amazing experiences, and I was kind of saying, <laughs> what is it about me? Nothing's really happening here. Um, and so uh, I, I remember sort of feeling quite frustrated, but I'm pretty sure... Uh, now that looking back at that time, that's when my so real love for scripture uh, took off. So I wonder whether uh, God really did do something in my heart at that time. And uh, so as I went to university, um, I w- uh, really enjoyed reading God's word and thinking it through. And, and uh, so I think that's probably uh, a significant moment where I, I started to um, to read and, and devour God's word. Mm, wonderful. Now you went, you talked about going to university, you went to Manchester University in the late 1980s uh, to read physics. I have to say physics was the only O-level I failed. With <laughs> miserable, miserable. We won't even go there. You were obviously good at physics. Um, how did you, how did your understanding of physics, it's a bit of a tough question maybe, align with your understanding of God whilst at university? I mean, generally speaking, uh, science is um, uh, entirely compatible with uh, belief in God. You know, you're studying nature and you just see, <clears throat> you know, whatever um, God has done. And so it's perfectly reasonable to do science and just say to yourself that you're thinking God's thoughts after him. Um, uh, there were quite a number of challenges. I remember my uh, first lecture on stars. Uh, I went to that module. And the opening lecture, the chap walked in, he's going to talk about the sun, first of all, and he said, the sun is about 10 billion years old. We know this because otherwise we wouldn't have had time to have evolved. And I thought, well, there's a, an interesting sort of uh, form of logic. Um, it's not really an observation, it's, a sort of, you know, it's a, an inference uh, rather than a, a scientific observation. So there's a lot of uh, challenging uh, worldviews within science, but um, you know, the day-to-day sort of bench work of uh, looking at forces or optics or studying particles or whatever—that's just looking at what God's done. Mm, wonderful. Now you you um, returned to study theology at uh, London Bible College in the mid 1990s, having been a science teacher. So I'm guessing you would have, you left uni and you became a teacher, science teacher, and also an energy analyst. The science teaching was in Zimbabwe. I went and taught in uh, uh, Emmanuel's school in Katerere in, in uh, Zimbabwe. Oh, wow. Amazing. 
Amazing, Zimbabwe. Yes, that's that's um, yeah. Um, you that how how did God take you from being a science teacher back to going to Bible college? Because that's a big shift, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, uh, when I was out in Zimbabwe, I did quite a lot of of uh, speaking and, and teaching um, in the churches as well. And uh, when I was an energy analyst up in Lytham St. Towns in a company called Inco, um, I uh, did a bit of teaching and uh, I was a, uh, a deacon in the church there. And um, I just remember thinking, this is great, quite enjoying my work, um, did quite well at it. Um, but I sort of uh, came to a point where I asked myself two very straightforward questions. Um, what do I enjoy? Well, I always enjoyed theology. I remember sort of reading... Uh, know the Truth by Bruce Mill out in Zimbabwe, just sort of sitting there on my veranda reading that book, getting uh, uh, interested in that. And then, uh, you know, what am I quite good at? Well, I'm, I'm quite good at teaching. And I had this sort of moment of clarity where, well, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll teach theology. <laughs> and it was pretty much as simple as that, really. I think probably God had a hand in it, but uh, it wasn't as a... Uh, a blinding revelation. It was just a moment of clarity where I thought, yes, this is, this is where I think my life could go. So you went off to LBC. Mm -hmm. uh, did you know um, where that was going to lead at the end of your studies there, particularly? Well, uh, as I say, I had um, a focus of teaching God's Word, so that was uh, where I thought it would go. I don't know. I didn't know where, and I remember applying uh, to uh, the Baptist Missionary Society. To, uh, to see if they would uh, take uh, me and my wife. I thought we'd be quite a good, uh, uh, quite a good deal for them. But um, they very rightly, after sort of listening to us saying that this was a, a terribly sensible idea, they just sort of said, um, but are you called? And I remember stopping and thinking, well, I'm not sure about that bit, actually. <laughs> so, um, so we went back, and actually, in God's very good grace, just uh, uh, not, not long after that, uh, an opening came up in this little Bible college called Christ for the Nations UK, mm. and uh, I got taken on there. Wonderful. So you, you lectured at that college, and you're currently on the staff uh, at Moreland's Bible College. Tell us about your work here at Moreland's. Gosh, um, well, it's very diverse. Um, topically in terms of what I teach it's diverse but also in, what I, in terms of what I do we have lots of contact with the students and uh, so that's one of the highlights is the fact that it's not simply just a, uh, an academic position where you're teaching but you're also investing in people's lives and you, you're getting to know your tutees and um, that's, uh, that's really one of the highlights of the job is, is meeting these incredible people who have no idea how uh, talented and gifted they are and what God can do through them, some of them. And, um, and then just watching as God brings them up and uh, challenges them and uh, shows them a glimpse of his, of his goodness in them. Mm. And uh, then they go on and, and spread their wings and fly off. And it's, mm. you know, it's always emotional seeing them go, but it's always quite satisfying mm. too. So do you have them, what, for three years, generally? Three or four, sometimes uh, they'll do a foundation okay. year, yeah. And, and where do they come from, these, these folks? Is it just UK or, or no. overseas? No, um, we've got folks from all over. Um, less so more recently. Uh, it's been a bit more difficult for overseas students to come, but I um, uh, had uh, folks from, from Europe as well. Mm. 
but um, yeah, from uh, uh, all over the UK certainly as well, mm. and from from all kinds of different backgrounds too, and that's that's really nice. It's mm. not just um, one one particular stereotype of student. Mm. And different ages, I guess as well. Different yes. Ages and stages. So it was um, great uh, when I had a um, uh, a former senior lecturer at Bournemouth University come and study, and uh, <laughs> that was quite interesting. Uh, actually, he was brilliant. He um, he was terribly gracious and made it really easy for me to be a tutor for him. But, you know, it was, uh, that was a challenge. That was a challenge to, how, how's it, how am I going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he was very good. Oh. So um, what gives you the most pleasure? I mean, you've hinted at it um, here in your work. And what brings you most pain in your work? Um, well, the pleasure is is the, and I suppose both. I mean, in order to to invest in these folk, you also teach them. And uh, so it's a real privilege to teach God's word. That's you know that's fantastic. Um, I've got the opportunity to to study and to uh, grow myself and to pass on some of the things that I learn. And um, <clears throat> my um, my views are uh, not always. Uh, uh, um, within the sort of normal distribution curve, sometimes they're a bit edgy, and uh, I still happen to think they're right, but that's not <laughs> that's that's often quite a challenge to some of the students, which is good. I think I think that um, we're not interested in indoctrinating anybody; we want to educate, and so uh, it's great that people get a chance to hear a, a variety of views, and um, so often I'm able to challenge them and to get them to think outside of their boxes and uh, so that's really fun to um, have some stimulating uh, conversations with people who find uh, some ideas difficult and, um, and different to what they've heard and uh, what's great is uh, in the vast majority of cases these are um, some of the most fruitful conversations where people are serious about finding out what are they, what am I saying, what are they hearing, and uh, it's uh, it's it can be really really positive. Mm. Mm. Um, you are also busy away from Moreland, speaking, lecturing at different Christian events and conferences, and I, I know you have a particular interest in the science and faith debate. Um, <laughs> what is your view about creation? Um, who are we to believe and, and why is that? Now, I know that's a massive question, but, you know, just how would you answer that? <laughs> <laughs> who are we to believe? Well, believe God's word. It's a really safe place to go. Um, it, you know, science is a, a very fickle subject. You... Um, often here on the TV, don't you, that uh, a new breakthrough, mm. uh, and this is a marvellous breakthrough, and now it's going to rewrite the science books on this and that. And the you next do time. hear that, yeah. Definitely. I hear it a lot. And so, um, in fact, um, you know, I've heard some science writers who, um, who say pretty much by the time the book has been published, it's out of date, <laughs> you know. Now, that, that probably isn't true in uh, schools and in... Um, uh, you know some university texts, but in some of the more sophisticated texts, that's that'll be absolutely right that um, science moves on. So um, now you would hope that uh, science is uh, becoming more and more accurate, more and more uh, close to the truth. But 
that often isn't the case. Science also has revolutions and breakthroughs and uh, changes of directions, changes of paradigms. So um, in that, in that science has shown itself to be a pretty fickle subject, or at least, um, you know, whatever given topic, um, where do you go for that sort of sense of um, security? Well, um, you know, you could do far worse than trusting God's word. Um, that doesn't bring quite as much clarity as, uh, uh, as it may sound, because um, by saying trust in God's word, you then say, OK, but how do you read it? And that's a, that's a secondary question. But in terms of the, the science and faith debate, um, I know where I'd put my money. I'd, mm. I'd, I'd put it on, uh, on God's word. Mm. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, I know you we were just talking before the, this uh, interview that you just come back from the States. And you were at a big conference there over in Seattle on the West Coast uh, at an intelligent design conference. Um, people may be thinking, oh, yeah, I've heard of that thing, intelligent design. I wonder what that's all about. Um, so my question is, are intelligent design and the Bible incongruous? And I guess it's probably worth explaining what people mean by intelligent design in the first place. So are the two incongruous, would you say? Um, uh, well, I mean, first of all, intelligent design is the theory that certain features of the world are best explained by uh, design or by a mind. Um, so if you look at, say, for example, the fine tuning of the constants of physics or of the universe, they seem bizarrely accurate and, and also entirely insensitive to any change. Uh, that would uh, any change would immediately prevent life from being possible at the, at the most fundamental level. Um, you know, your atoms wouldn't stick together. You couldn't get complex molecules. You couldn't get a universe. So um, there are things like that that say yes. Yeah, so uh, just by looking at the the brute data of the universe, we can conclude reasonably that uh, that only mind is the best explanation. That you don't get this kind of thing by by chance, then there isn't a sort of, there isn't a law that says these constants have to have these particular values, and therefore, where did they come from that that so fitted um, uh, life in this universe? So, and then you can go from the the cosmic scale right down to the uh, the molecular biological scale and look in the cell and sort of, again, uh, the systems that are there, the uh, the complexity. Um, but fundamentally, it's the information in the cell which says, <clears throat> you know, you just don't get that level of information from chance. It's, it's just not the right kind of thing. So um, what's the best scientific explanation? Well, the best scientific explanation, the one that is repeatable, the one that uh, has causes currently in operation that, can, uh, that are analogous to it, is mind the only the only known source for information is a mind, and so it's this kind of um, uh, search for uh, evidence and and, there, and then search for the best explanation for the evidence that points towards the reality of a need for mind. Now it's true to say that intelligent design is a uh, is a very broad church. So we have people <clears throat> who are very Bible believing, uh, strong Christians who support it. We also have people who are um, wildly agnostic uh, to the point of being atheistic, who nonetheless also believe that the best explanation is intelligent design. So they might put the 
the, the, the intelligence as perhaps aliens. I mean, that's, that's been suggested. Uh, they might put the intelligence perhaps as being within the cosmos itself. Now, uh, when you start sort of asking those questions, what does it look like for the universe itself to be intelligent? You're getting into some pretty weak philosophy, but that's where you got to go if you just don't want there to be a god. And it's pretty much as simple as that. Actually, it's very straightforward. There's a, a world-class philosopher called Thomas Nagel who wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. And the subtitle of his book is Why the Neo-Darwinian View of the World is Almost Certainly False. So here's an atheist philosopher who's saying, well, the one thing I'm absolutely sure about is the Darwinian view is just hopeless, but I'm just not keen about being a, a, a God believer, so I'll say that mind is, must be a fundamental quantity of the cosmos. So uh, all of these um, are uh, what we call sort of co-belligerents. Uh, essentially, um, if uh, it, it, we can all sort of gather under one intelligent design uh, umbrella, uh, and oppose the sort of materialistic view of the world which is so prevalent in, in our schools and in our university and in our society. And um, so you don't have to be a, a Christian to be an intelligent design supporter, but do you know what? It really helps. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Now, there's much debate going on in our nation at the moment about this, about gender fluidity. I mean, you hear in the schools that, um, you know, a neutral dress you can you can you can uh, you know um, I know that they're talking about banning skirts for girls and and uh, making it possible to um, you know change your um, gender more more readily um, this whole thing about gender fluidity how does the word of God speak into this from your perspective gosh this is um, probably one of the most uh, difficult areas mm. I would say um, uh, because um, it brings into sharp focus very different worldviews. Yeah. Um, you've got a worldview which uh, stems from the Bible, which um, seems to be pretty binary in its thinking, um, particularly when you read Genesis and you think about how God created human beings. Um, th then uh, you uh, bring that into into conflict, really, with a worldview which says that um, uh, gender is something that is uh, man-made or, or a product of human society, um, and that since it's uh, a social construct, um, why does it need to be binary? Um, why stop there? Um, doesn't that sort of constrain people? So if folks have felt that they can, uh, um, or, or sometimes actually if they feel that they are obliged to decide their own gender, then why should they, as it were, stop with traditional uh, values? And so um, recently Facebook um, had 71 different options for gender identity. Mm. It wasn't just male and female. It could be uh, cis, trans, woman, 
you can, I mean, just the number of different varieties, anyway, 71 different ways of expressing your particular agenda, and why should it stop at 71? I think that's just when they ran out of words. So, um, uh, gender identity, or, the, or the, the gender identity debate is an expression of uh, a clash of worldviews. Um, to what extent is gender the same as sexuality? To what extent is gender the same as um, sex as well? Male and female not being the same as masculine and feminine. Now, um, uh, I am um, I'm cautious about sort of simplistic arguments because there's certainly no doubt that um, the way in which we express masculinity and femininity is very culturally dependent. So, um, for example, when I tell people that I got married in a skirt, uh, sometimes <laughs> people have a bit of a, a double take about that until they realise that uh, it was in a kilt, and that apparently makes it okay. Um, but um, so the way in which we express normal normalcy uh, in gender is socially constructed. But what I'm not saying is that uh, there is nothing, as it were, given um, about our biological identity, nor is there nothing uh, revealed about how those biological entities should express themselves. So um, what I think is really important in this debate is to find um, a, a sort of a third way, which is usually not brought up in this debate, the primary debate is, you say, well, God created us male and female. And actually, that tends to be a biological argument. It says, look, you've got an XY pattern of chromosomes and you've got an XX pattern of chromosomes, and that's it. Um, versus the those who say, well, no, the whole thing is up for grabs. Uh, it's all a matter of social uh, construction. Well, uh, we need to, I think, find a, a, a way that says um, God has revealed in his word uh, patterns of uh, relationship between male and female. And so it's not just biology, nor is it just free for all and we can make it all up ourselves. There's a revealed pattern which is in scripture about how men and women relate to each other. And it's not simply an expression of biology, it's actually a matter of coming under uh, the sovereignty of God's word. Now you can tell, you can see therefore why those who have no particular inclination about coming under God's word wouldn't find that argument particularly persuasive. Um, and those who just turn to biology uh, will also point out that, um, you know, there are some very heart breaking cases of intersex people where yeah. Yeah. Uh, your one's biology is not as clear-cut as it might be. And so uh, therefore I, I just don't think that either of those two positions is really going to hold hold you up in your argument. Um, but for those who do come under God's word, then uh, at least there's a, a, a bit more clarity about how we can relate to each other. And there's we can say, well, um, it may be my my choice to come under God's word, but uh, I don't think that God's word is arbitrary. 
So um, uh, God's revelation about, uh, particularly in the New Testament, about being submissive to one another, uh, about family structure, uh, about um, children within the families, and about sort of uh, uh, how husbands should love their wives and, and so on. Those things are revealed, and so therefore we can uh, give a really good justification about how genders should relate to each other based on God's word. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. Now, talking about family, your father, uh, you have four children, um, three boys, I understand. Three uh, boys and, and my <laughs> eldest is my daughter. <laughs> um, how has your fathering experience enhanced your understanding of God? Um, I was worried about this question. Um, uh, I mean, I suppose um, it, it has reminded me of my need for him <laughs> and my sort of uh, limitations. I mean, uh, I don't know how well I reflect God's uh, uh, heart, I suppose, just uh, loving and uh, keeping going, persistence. I suppose the, the way in which he's persisted with me, I have persisted with my kids. Um <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I don't know, yes. The, 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 the primary uh, thing is that um, uh, God is, is Father, and um, I, the, actually one thing that has um, made quite a difference in some of the students' lives, some students who come here who have had very poor uh, experience as, a, as uh, children to their dads, and they find relating to God as Father very difficult because um, certainly in, in a sort of previous form of theology, theology was uh, um, seen to be a sort of, again, a, a human idea or a human construct and therefore if we said God was Father that was taken to be sort of a projection of male identity or something like that and therefore those who've had a bad experience of, of uh, male um, fathers have therefore not been able to relate to God particularly very much. One of the things it seems to me is that um, God is Father, and insofar as any bloke who has kids resembles God, then he can call himself a father. But we don't define God's fatherhood by our limited efforts at being a father. We define our efforts at being a father in light of God's relationship to us. And that's been quite a revelation to some who uh, realised that actually their dads have been very poor reflections of what a father actually is. And therefore, going back to God as father mm. has, has been all the more uh, easy since they, they realised that um, uh, the way their dad treated them really wasn't much of a reflection of what a father actually is. Yeah, very good. Very good. Um... I want to, we, we've obviously talked about the Bible, but I, I, I want to ask you this direct question. Why, why is the Bible so important for you? Um, first question, and related to that, how relevant is it for us here now in the UK with what's going on culturally, politically, you know, people, uh, people's understanding of God? Why, why is it so important for you, this book? Well, it's the Word of God. <laughs> I think that's... That's pretty much it. It's um, you. You know, you have to take a, a, a position on that, really. Um, sure, we can uh, come up with all kinds of uh, good, solid apologetic arguments as to 
its historical reliability and um, the way in which it was put together. You know, there are all kinds of, sort of remarkable aspects about it. Um, but fundamentally, um, it's your attitude towards it uh, that is, I think, most important. And uh, if it's God's word, then it, it, gets, to, it gets to say, uh, it gets to decide. And I think um, the idea of coming under God's word and um, receiving it as God's word is a humbling thing. And uh, it, um, it helps you to locate yourself really within the universe. Um, because God's word has a, a tremendous claim at being able to say how to read the world, how to understand the world. So um, the first, and the answer to your first question is, how do I receive it? It's the word of God. Why is it important to our culture? It's uh, important because, well, for two reasons. First of all, it tells us who the Lord Jesus is. And um, it, sh it sort of shows us what he's done, uh, who he is, how much he loves us. And uh, so uh, it is of inestimable value because uh, we know truly who Jesus is through God's word. But in terms of um, its value in the culture more broadly, God's word gives us a narrative. It tells us the true story of who we are and who God's, uh, or what God's world is. And um, we are increasingly realising that um, having a worldview or what our worldview is, is so definitive for us. Everybody's got one. Uh, everybody's got a worldview. We all have, as it were, spectacles through which we see everything. We don't realise it often because it's so second nature. We think it's, you know, to change the analogy, it's like the water that the fish swim in. They just don't realise that it's there, but it really is there. And if you take a fish out of water, it suddenly realises it. Um, so um, the Bible gives us a, a revealed worldview, a, an authorised worldview, which stretches right back from God who created the world uh, to God who created us to God's people, Israel, who um, anticipated and saw the uh, power and the love of God, and to um, uh, the person of Jesus who uh, reveals God's love fully and uh, then that forms uh, the people of God around him and that tells us what will happen in the future and gives us um, hope and confidence uh, that we are not um, just simply cast adrift, uh, but that in fact we are heading towards a, a fixed point. So um, why is the Bible so important for our culture? Because our culture has cut itself off from its uh, uh, moorings and from its its and has uh, has disbelieved that there is a destination really and that it sort of feels cast adrift so um, uh, what would be great is for culture to recognize that um, 
this idea that it can kind of generate its own narrative or simply buy into, say, a scientific worldview of ever-increasing progress or um, a sort of a hope that says, well, one day in the future science will provide the answers. We kind of need to realise that these are very vacuous uh, worldviews, very empty, um, disappointing and unfulfilling, um, and fundamentally false as well. And therefore, uh, we turn to God's Word because, uh, well, because it gives us a resolution as to who we are, and we find ourselves within the worldview of Scripture. We find out what it means to be a human. We find out what it means to be a good human. Um, we find out uh, where the problems have come from and what God has done about it. And we find out what happens next. The fun most fundamental thing at the point of death. Um, where will we be? What confidence do we have? And, um, uh, uh, and where do we get that confidence from? Wonderful. How do you study it yourself? Uh, two main ways. Um, I do a lot of commuting, and so I listen to it on my uh, iPod. Good man. Yes, Good it's, man. Uh, it's Good a man. wonderful way of, of uh, getting through a lot of scripture. Absolutely. I do a similar thing. Not that I have a long commute, but when I'm traveling, I mean, as I was coming down here today, I was listening to to Jeremiah, which I'm studying at the moment. So that's, yeah, brilliant. And I think that's a, such a great point. For those listening here, if you commute, uh, you walk the dog, you know, whatever it may be, these are times when you can actually be listening to the Word of God. You may not be sitting down studying it with a pencil or pen or whatever, but you can actually be listening to it and washing, letting it wash over you. So I think that's a great point, yeah. So Yeah. And then the other thing that uh, tends to drive my study is primarily my work. I mean, I'm, I'm privileged... Uh, to uh, be able to teach uh, specific books on the Bible and then uh, specific themes on the Bible. So, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm lucky in that I, I teach hermeneutics, which is how we approach the Bible at all, um, and the different genre of the scripture. And, um, and then I, I teach practical theology, which is how you apply God's word to ministry. So, as it were, coming to God's word and then going from God's word out into the world. So uh, that's very fortunate. And then um, I teach Old Testament as a whole, which is, uh, I tend to focus on the, the first five books of, of Scripture, the Pentateuch, um, and, uh, and then prophets a bit. And then uh, in the New Testament, my um, focus has tend to be on, uh, on Pauline texts, particularly Romans. Uh, I used to teach Revelation, which was pretty fun. Um, so my... My study of scripture, by necessity, is always driven by my next task, really, because um, teaching biblical theology and uh, New Testament, um, you you just never know enough, never, ever know enough. And so, therefore, I'm always scrabbling just to, to catch up. Um, so that's that really is uh, what drives my, my study. Oh, I heard I, I once heard a summary of the book of Revelation in two words. I don't know I don't know if you could summarize the book of Revelation in two words, but it was uh, uh, Jesus wins. Right. Uh, yes. Why not? <laughs> now, do you have a favorite Bible book or or character in the Bible at all? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I tend to, my favourite book that I, is the book I'm studying, frankly, because uh, I'm a bit, a bit flighty like that. So uh, I've been studying Romans for a while now, so Romans is pretty cool. Um, and so that, you know, they're really, um, again, uh, just to sort of uh, be a bit provocative, generally speaking, uh, folk have tended to see Romans uh, 1 to 3 as being the sort of, or maybe 1 to 4 as being the, the centerpiece of Romans, but actually I think that's not right. Um, it seems to me that that's particularly contextual. People might find that surprising. Um, where I think Paul lays out the gospel most clearly is Romans 5 to 8. Um, it's it's uh, where he starts to use well the terms saved yeah. uh, and Christ and the Spirit, for example. Uh, it's much more Christological in those chapters, interestingly enough. Romans 1 to 4 isn't very Christological, which is surprising if it were the heart of Romans. Um, so where Paul starts to really unpack those is, uh, I think, where he gets to his heart. It's not a matter of that was justification, this is sanctification. I think those are far too blunt uh, to describe it. Um, I think that Romans 6, the first few uh, verses of Romans 6, is um, really one of the most uh, subtle and, and brilliant uh, summaries of, of the gospel, um, focusing on what, what, who we are in, in and through the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, we die in Christ, we are raised with him. That's not sanctification, that's, that is salvation. Um, and, uh, and so I think that those, those are sublime. Uh, Romans 9 to 11 where he wrestles with what it means to be the people of God, and I don't think that's a separate argument. People are, um, uh, some folk have, have said that that's a sort of um, a side issue or an excursus or a sort of, um, oh, and another thing. That's just, I don't think that's right at all. It seems to me that Romans 1 to 11 is one sustained argument. And um, uh, so, you know, finding out who we are in Christ is, uh, is really important in Romans 9 to 11 as well. Mm. Okay, so Romans it is. Uh, what about a favourite Bible verse? Well, I, yes, I'm not very good at sort of selecting any one particular one. I, I could have chosen Romans 8, which is the verse that, Romans 8, 1, which is what I uh, was given when I got baptised, and that was pretty good. Uh, that means that still carries a lot of weight. But I think uh, something that uh, I read in um, a hermeneutics text, Grant Osborne pointed this out, and I, I kind of went with his uh, suggestion that Isaiah 55 contains a really important text for those who teach God's word, as I do. Um, and it goes like this, Romans, Isaiah 55, uh, verse 10 and 11. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Now this is really good because it says that uh, God's word is not simply an object in the world, but it is um, a voice that, that does things. It changes people. It is not simply an inert text to be perused. It is something that is active and living, sharper than any two-edged sword, as Paul says. Um, but um, the uh, 
the thing that uh, that is also pretty cool about this is that when Jesus is identified as the Word of God, these verses just slide straight over onto defining who he, he is. He goes out from him and he says nothing other than what the Father says he wants him to say and he will achieve the purposes for which God has sent him. So mm. it's a, a very Trinitarian verse in that sense. Mm. Wonderful. Um, in a minute, I'm going, I'm going to ask you about um, what would you say to the, to the person asking questions about, you know, why I'm here, what's this all about? But before that, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what's challenging you intellectually at the moment? What, what's... You know, you're clearly you're here at a, at a in an educational establishment. You're you're obviously teaching. Um, what's challenging you in this way at the moment? Uh, <clears throat> intellectually, I suppose um, intelligent design is a fantastic challenge. Um, I mean, it's it's enormously stretching in terms of the, the topics that we, we covered. I mean, I did study physics, but that was a very long time ago, and <laughs> so going to this conference, I've had to sort of uh, remind myself about quarks and spin and uh, the sort of cosmological constant and all these kinds of uh, cosmic terms which are which are great and uh, you know I, I felt for a while that I was hanging on with my fingertips and then I find myself in free fall really not not really following what they were saying but I'll go back and reread some of that stuff so that's that's great and the um, uh, I mean what is just brilliant is the uh, the molecular biology of the cell uh, and DNA and RNA and proteins and all that because the more you find out about this just the most elaborate exquisite extraordinary um, means that God used to produce life every living cell having uh, the full sort of um, three billion uh, nucleotide bases that um, uh, that compose the DNA and then uh, incredible exquisite machines that read it, that copy it, that combine it in multivarious different ways to produce the thousands and tens of thousands of proteins that we need for every cell at every moment of the day. I mean, it's, it, is, uh, it is utterly mind-bending. So <laughs> keeping up with that is, uh, is extraordinary because, uh, I mean, it is the most prima facie obvious case for design, in, in, in my view. Um, it, it, it seems, I know people do, but it seems utterly unbelievable that people could really study what goes on inside the cell and not just be uh, utterly convinced that this is the product of the most immense mind. Mm -hmm. So that's um, uh, stretching me intellectually. Uh, what is stretching me um, uh, in terms of my energies is trying to get... Um, some uh, some work done on my doctorate. Um, I've uh, got um, uh, I've been very fortunate in being able to deliver some intelligence design courses. I've undergone some um, uh, interviews with uh, folks who've, who've attended those, and I'm trying to uh, reflect on those to build up a, a picture in order to answer the question: uh, What impact does teaching intelligent design have on on Bible college students or church members? Um, to be able to um, uh, say whether or not this is something that we should be uh, really promoting and pursuing in the churches today. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Now, what would you say, there may be people listening to this and um, asking themselves the question, you know, why am I here? 
what's what's this all about? What's what's life all about? Um, what would you say to that person? Um, it takes you right back to the <clears throat> to the worldview uh, issue. Um, it, you you it, the only way you can answer that question is by being very clear about your worldview. The worldview comes uh, out when the child asks the very annoying question, but why? And you give an answer, and then the child says again, but why? And you have to give another answer. And eventually, you either tell them just to be quiet, or you just say, well, God did it. And, you know, at that point, you've suddenly bumped up against your fundamental uh, worldview. So, um, so think to yourself, uh, what is your response to the but why question uh, at every level. Um, scripture tells us that um, uh, God created this world for a very good reason, and that is to create people for him to love and who would love him. The best way of articulating that is um, through a sort of romantic uh, story. Um, how does the Bible end? It ends with a marriage supper. And so therefore the Bible is fundamentally a, a romance. Um, it's about how uh, the father uh, finds a bride for his son. So uh, what is What's the point of this world? What's the point of living? It is to be part of the Bride of Christ. Now, the thing about being a bride is um, it's not much fun having a shotgun wedding where you're forced to love somebody that kind of, by definition, isn't love. So if God wants somebody to uh, love and to be part of the Bride of Christ, then it's got to be real love, expressed freely, with no compulsion, but with every motivation. And um, the whole point, therefore, of creation, the whole point of uh, God creating so many, many people, is that only collectively could we ever be the kind of bride that would be suitable for the most amazing son of God. And um, that therefore gives us real freedom to accept or to reject uh, his proposal of marriage, his invitation to be part of the, uh, the Bride of Christ. Nobody's forcing you, um, but there's really every good reason to, to accept that most generous offer of, uh, of a union with Christ, of um, uh, total meaning and of uh, finding one's identity in right at the heart of God, in love. Uh, so that's what I might say. Thank you so much. Alistair, it's been a real privilege to come down here and to um, steal some of your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, I know uh, the students here love um, what you do for them. And, uh, you know, just a couple of days ago on Facebook, I, was, uh, I, I posted something about the fact that I was coming down here to talk to you. And they said, oh, Alistair, yeah, I was, I was at, you know, college or wherever it was for Alistair, you know, what's Alistair up to these days? Send him my, send him my best. So, so the Lord bless you in your work, in your studies, in your helping of the students. And uh, thank you so much for being on the Bible and Me podcast. It's my pleasure.
You've been listening to the Bible and Me podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. If you want to find out more about Precept Ministries UK, visit www.precept.org.uk. Thank you.